I will wager that if a man advertises the most impossible thing in the world, that he will find enough fools in London who believe it to fill a whole playhouse. It was 1749. And so the story goes, at a New Year's party that got rather out of hand, for as the wine continued to flow, so did the jokes about the uneducated masses, such that John and Philip were now in their element, or to give them their proper names, John Montagu, the Earl of Montagu, a doctor in physics at Cambridge University, and Philip Stanhope, the Duke of Chesterfield, a postgraduate in classics and in Renaissance history, were in their absolute element. For both men enjoyed nothing more than scoffing at the sheer stupidity of their city. And so to the delight of their fellow pretentious party-goers, the ever-rational physicist John made a bet with the ever-wise philosopher Philip. In typical fashion, the scientist called for a, a foresaid experiment. I will wager that if a man advertises the most impossible thing in the world, that he will find enough fools in London who believe it to fill a whole playhouse. And in typical fashion, the philosopher posed the question. Surely none. Surely none are so stupid in London that if a man were to say that he could jump into, into one of these wine bottles, that anyone would believe that. And so, to much hilarity, the bet was on. And over the next few weeks, John employed his great mind and his great wealth and his great connections to get the message out such that the message of, of many a London newspaper read at the new theatre in Haymarket on the 16th of January, 1749, is to be seen a powerful man who in the sight of all the spectators will give up his normal existence and will shrink himself such that he fits into a common wine bottle. And so come the night of the 16th of January, 1749, what happened? Or to the great glee of John, and probably even Philip, on that night, a whole playhouse was filled. The new theater in Haymarket was packed with fools. Those who'd spent all they had in the hope of seeing the most impossible thing in the world. Indeed, the commoners of London waited a whole hour in silence before giving up hope and then rioting at their own foolish beliefs. And from the safety of their gated homes, the powerful, the rich, the wise of London snorted with laughter. Friends, I wonder who do you most relate to in that true story? I wonder who would you be if you lived in, in London in 1749? How do you position yourself in the city? Do you see yourself as a, as a rational scientist, a, a John Montagu type? I, I never believe it until someone proves it to me person. Do you like to laugh at fools who believe without proof? Or do you see yourself as a kind of wise philosopher type, a, a Philip Stanhope? And never trust it until my great mind has pondered every single angle of it person. Do you sorrowfully look down on those of lesser IQs? Maybe you're not quite as wise, maybe not quite as mean, 
But secretly, you're confident that, that you would have made John and Philip's guest list, for you consider yourself a little wiser than the average commoner. And even if not, well, then could it be that amongst your, your fellow city dwellers that you are often seen as the common fool, one so desperate so desperate that you might even hope in a powerful man who would give up their existence and become a common wine bottle for your joy. And if so, how do you cope when smarter people laugh at you? Do you riot physically, mentally? Or have you learned to just stay totally silent in front of your betters? Who do you consider yourself to be today? Who do you aspire to being tomorrow? This morning we continue on with our series into the first century letter of 1 Corinthians, a letter which you can see uh, there at the top of the page was written by verse 1, the Apostle Paul, and written to verse 2, the church in Corinth. And what was the first century Greek city of Corinth like? Well, Well, honestly, it was pretty similar to London, in 1749. In fact, we might say that it was pretty similar to to Nashville in 2022, for it was increasingly the place to be, a city of great education and great entertainment, and yet a place where well-to-do families could still have great power. Indeed, for the last hundred years, Corinth had grown hugely in stature and prominence, For the famous Emperor Julius Caesar in in 44 BC had made Corinth into a strategic Roman colony. Such by the time when this letter was penned, Corinth with its two huge ports and awful slave market had also become the epicenter for business which brought with it great riches and great immorality. And yet... And yet into that smug, well-supplied, well-schooled city of sin, the word of God had taken root. For in Acts chapter 18, we read that that a gospel seed fell uh, around the year AD 50. The apostle Paul left the powerful city of Athens and went with his two friends, Aquila and Priscilla, to the next powerful city, Corinth. And there Paul taught the word of God such that before long, a church had sprung up. Some in Corinth had believed the message of God. Some in Corinth had had united as the people of God. Some in Corinth now gathered as the church of God. But sadly, sadly, by the time Paul writes this letter, uh, just a year or so later, all was not well with this fledgling church. For in chapter 14, we see that the church of God in Corinth were, were not even gathering together. For as we saw last week, the people of God were not united. And the reason or the result was that the message of God was no longer central. Corinth was always going to be hard gospel ground. Gospel fruit was always going to be hard to come by in Corinth. But now the, the, the kind of cultural climate of this city was so weakening, this little gospel stalk, that the church drooped to the point of death. So what powerful dispatch did these divided, these these drooping people need as their church headed into decline? Did they need a a powerful psychological preaching on worldly conflict resolution methodology? Did they need powerful prophetic preaching? 
People speaking in, in spiritual tongues. Did they need powerful persuasive preaching to draw in the, the academic upper classes of Greece? Corinthian versions of the rich intellectual dukes of Montaigne and earls of Chesterfield. Well, that is sadly the type of preaching that this church thought that they needed, but no. What these people obviously most needed was the preaching that they had received in the first place. They needed God's help. They needed God's message. And so point one this morning, what is God's message? What is God's message? What what message would unite these people again? What, What message were these people to keep preaching in this city of great power? And likewise for us, what is the message that you and I must keep preaching if we want to stay united here? What is the message that you and I must keep preaching if we want to win our powerful city for God? What is God's message? Answer, Christ crucified. Answer, Christ crucified. In this passage, there are three occasions when Paul unpacks what the message of God is. The first one is found... Uh, In verse 18, right at the start, the final one, uh, in verse 30, right at the end. But perhaps the clearest and simplest description of Paul's message is found in the middle in verses 22 and 23. So do glance there. Uh, Verse 22, little number two, uh, little number 22 rather. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. This, says Paul, it is the heart of God's message to us boiled down into one noun and one verb. And the noun, how would that noun have landed in Corinth? Well, no doubt that the noun sounded glorious. For the noun was and is Christ. The subject of the message was the powerful king, for Christ literally means anointed one. In fact, the word Christ means more than just anointed one. For in the Hebrew context, it means prophesied one. One who had been prophesied about even before the ancient of Greeks. One in the line of the the powerful King David and the the all-wise Solomon. And thus we may imagine that the noun of Paul's preaching would have filled any lecture room at any top Corinthian university any exhibition hall in any elitist Corinthian forum, any season at any prestigious Corinthian theater. But if the spectacular noun of the message initially caused a a kind of great buzz around powerful Corinth, drawing in the the rich and and the academic and the ruling classes like bees to a honeypot, the subsequent verb of the message would have instantly caused all of them to just fly away. For verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. Crucified. The word of God is about the anointed one who, verse 19, was placed on a cross. That the powerful king of which I preached to you, says Paul, died as the greatest possible fool. For this king died by the first century Roman method of execution. And since execution, 
like this, since crucifixion was reserved for for common slaves, yes, he, he died in the most of undistinguished ways. And since he was crucified by two criminals, nailed to two cheap planks of wood, yes, he died in the most crude of ways. And since the crucified were were stripped totally naked, yes, he died in the most humiliating of ways. And since the crucified often took days to die, he died in the most scandalous of ways. For the cross was the first century picture of utter weakness. Indeed, so much so that for us today, in in 2022, it's it's, it's hard for us to imagine what what disgrace a a cross would bring to mind. For when we picture crosses today, we we picture symbols on on, on powerful buildings and and, and jewelry around the the, the necks of powerful women. Indeed, just this past week, a a, a diamond-encrusted cross necklace worn by Princess Diana, was sold for $200,000 and was purchased by none other than the celebrity Kim Kardashian. A cross in the 21st century may still symbolize great worth, but in the first century, a cross symbolized unimaginable weakness. The cross was a disgraceful, disreputable, dreadful death Wearing a cross would have been as repugnant as, as wearing an electric chair around your neck or a shower head from Auschwitz. And so preaching and proclaiming a cross, well, that was either the sign of madness or, or some kind of morbid humor. In fact, once the Corinthian crowd had gotten over the, the appalling shock levels of, of Paul's message about crucifixion, No doubt that the idea that that a king, a king was nailed naked to a cross would have brought much hilarity. For the qualifying noun, the Christ, only made the punchline crucified more hilariously ridiculous. For like a powerful politician being hit in the face with a custard pie rather than a clown, That the notion that God's powerful king could come down from from heaven in weakness and be crucified like a shameful commoner was surely a message reserved only for the great fools of their city. And you know what? We actually know that. We know that historically, that that is exactly how that message landed. For do you know what the earliest picture of Jesus is? The earliest picture of Jesus is the Alexamanus Graffitio. It is a second century picture of Jesus scrawled onto a Roman wall where Jesus is pictured as a donkey on a cross and a man with a silly expression on his face raises his hand to the crucified donkey in praise and underneath the comical caption reads, Alexamanus worships his God. Alexamanus, the Christian, The village idiot worships God on a Roman cross. The very first picture of Jesus was was no less than some kind of amusing gif. Christ crucified? What an utterly foolish message. And yet, my friends, this is indeed God's message to us. This is why we're gathering here right now. Teenage children here 
This is the reason why mum and dad woke you up early this morning. Church visitors, those exploring Christianity here, that that is the mad message that you will hear from this pulpit week after week and the very center of what you must investigate. For the crux of God's message to all humanity is the seemingly weak message of Christ crucified. The message of God's very son suffering in shame. The message of God's king completely capitulating. That the message of an impossible shrinking of power as ridiculous as a man becoming a wine bottle. So look down with me to verse 30 to see the shrinking of which I'm talking. Verse 30 You are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Can you see what Paul reiterates here? That the wisdom of God is Jesus Christ. The wisdom of God is the powerful king shrinking down for us. It is Christ becoming our righteousness. It is him giving up his righteousness so that we might have hope of right legal standing before God and not be condemned. And it is Christ becoming our sanctification. Him giving us his holiness so that we might be declared forever holy. And it is Christ becoming our redemption. Him giving up his very blood so that we did not have to pay that price for all the many ways in which we have sought to destroy our relationship with God and one another. The seemingly impossible message of Christianity is that God's powerful king came down, put himself on the, on the center stage of all history, shrinking down from heaven to cross, that in him, verse 30, by faith we may come to God. Friends, that's it. That's it. That, that is the message of God. That, that is the powerful substance for staying united with fellow Christians but ultimately of having any unity with God. And that is why cross-centered preaching is, is always to be the center of Edgefield Church. And why we are not finally to preach Christ as, as some counselor for our mental health or some contributor of a, of a happier lifestyle or some kind of coach for, for more creativity at, at work for the next week. We preach Christ crucified for our crimes so that we may be united with God. For in his seemingly impossible shrinking, we find righteousness, sanctification, and redemption in him. We find our only hope for life and death. And so unbeliever here, don't look past it. For you will never understand God's wisdom if you seek a cross-less Christianity. And believers here, don't ever move on from it. For you will only become more anxious, doubtful in your faith, if you seek a crossless Christianity. And church members here, don't ever let your pastors start preaching a crossless Christianity or just preaching something else because they think that that unity or or growth will be achieved if they pivot to another message other than Christ crucified. For as the minister J.C. Ryle said to his church, let other preachers preach the law and morality, 
Let other preachers drench their congregations with teaching about the sacraments. Give me the cross of Christ. For this is the only lever which has ever turned the world upside down and made men forsake their sins. And if this will not, nothing will. A pastor may begin preaching with a perfect knowledge of of Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, but he will do little or no good amongst his heroes unless he knows something of the cross. For this is the preaching that the Holy Spirit delights to bless. He loves to honor those who honor the cross. And so that is what God's message is. That that is the message for our church that we must work very hard to keep right at the center. But secondly, what does God's message do? Point two this morning. What does God's message do? What were the Corinthians to expect? What were they to expect if they decided to, to follow Paul's example here and kept the message of the cross right at the center of their preaching and their life together as a church? What would happen in that city? Well, firstly, they were to expect a division in their city. For what does God's message do? It divides people. It divides people. Since arriving in America, one of the things that I haven't really been able to find here is a very sticky dark brown paste, which comes in a kind of little four-ounce jar and has the very weird name Marmite. And when you discover that, that Marmite is the kind of byproduct sludge of an industrial process, and when you see that the Marmite has all the consistency and color of old engine oil, given what you may know about British cuisine, you'll be unsurprised to know that, that British people eat it. Except if you look at the marketing research, 49% of British people do not. The half of my country, unlike me, do not love eating Marmite, rather they hate it. And if YouTube videos are anything to go by, then that's not only the case in the UK. In fact, I recently saw one uh, video of two Japanese students trying uh, Marmite for the very first time. Uh, One beamed and said, delicious, delicious. The other, holding back tears in basic English, said, my face is broken. And so accepting that the incredibly divisive nature of their product, the slogan on every jar of Marmite is simply, love it or hate it. Marmite, dividing the nation since 1902. And with God's message, with God's message, it's just the same, isn't it? For verse 18 again, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, It is the power of God. That the message of God is is Marmite, says Paul. Some think of it to be utter folly, a disgusting and distasteful message which cannot possibly be swallowed. But for others, it is the power of God, a delicious and delightful message which not only satisfies, but saves. Indeed, Paul says that some people rightly see this, that this Marmite message of God to be life-saving medicine in light of their sin before a holy God. But to those who are still perishing, 
to those who stay in their sin, who do not say sorry, who die in their sin, that the gospel is at best a placebo for the paranoid or at worst a drug that will damage those who are actually just fine. Paul, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And my friends, aren't verses 18 and 23 exactly what you experience? You preach Christ crucified and your your friends on Sunday morning, they seem to love it. But to your first century Jew-like friend on Monday morning, your, your rational scientist, John Montenew type friend, your I'll never believe it until I see it type friend, it is, verse 23, a stumbling block. And likewise to your first century Greek-like friend on Tuesday morning, your wise philosopher Philip Stanhope type friend, your I'll never trust it until my great mind has, has pondered every single angle of it, friend, it is, verse 23, folly. For the message of God divides people. Accordingly, throughout this whole passage of complete contrast, Paul is at pains to highlight just the the, the normality of this reaction. Paul says, preach this message and you you might as well go into the Marmite business. For citywide division will occur. No, No longer will division occur, indeed, across traditional lines, Jew versus Gentile lines, science versus philosopher lines, but rather a division will occur along the lines of those who love the gospel and those who hate the gospel. Division in this city will be seen in those who accept their foolishness, their need of a savior, their need of a cross, and so those who delight in God's message and those who will not let go of their wisdom, who will not accept their need for a savior, their need for a cross, and so they will ridicule the message and the silly people who believe it. And friends, although perhaps discouraging in one sense, when you and I consider this task to preach this message to, that there is also something rather comforting in this, isn't there? For if we know that the, that the preaching of God's message will produce a response one way or the other, then we won't think that any division is our fault. Some will hate it, and it won't be our fault so long as we are kind and so long as we are faithful. Because to those who are perishing, it will be folly. It will be disgusting. But some will love it. Some will love it. Some will wonderfully understand it to be more than just Marmite, but, but medicine for their sick souls that need saving. Summer Psalm 34 puts it, will we'll taste and see that the Lord is good. And friends, if we, if we rightly see God's message like that, as it really is, not just as Marmite, but medicine, then for the sake of those who will be saved, then we should put up with those who snigger. But in our selfishness, sometimes we don't, do we? And sadly, I see myself in that. You know, sometimes when people come around our house, I often like to give them something British. And so I, or most of the time Sarah, will cook a delicious steak and ale pie or perhaps some amazing British pudding. But you know, when people come over, I've started to notice that, that what I never give to our guests 
is Marmite. And the reason, as I've said, is it's not because I don't like it. I really do. No, the reason why is because I fear that the, the potential faces that they will pull if they fail to appreciate it like I do. In short, the potential for a bad reaction ensures that the Marmite just stays in the jar, in the cupboard, away from everybody so that I might give them something more palatable. Because ultimately, I care more about what people think of British people and most importantly, what they think about me than I do about them potentially discovering something deliciously divine. Friends, what selfishness-driven harm we do to our friends if we invite them into our lives only to give them something that is intellectually filling or something that is, 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 is just spiritual sugar rather than the humbling medicine of the gospel, the wisdom of God in Christ, because we fear being thought of as stupid. Friends, the word of God must be preached in spite of the fact that it will divide because that is what God's word does. But what else does God's word do? Well, under that second point, we note here that God's message also destroys pride. What does God's message do? It destroys pride. Where have we gotten to in Paul's argument? Let's look back again at the text. Well, well thus far we've said that God's message uh, is the divine dying a disgraceful death that all humanity deserved and that therefore God's message will divide humanity into two. There'll be those who desire it and there'll be those who detest it. But the reason for God's message is because God loves to destroy pride. Can you see that in verse 19? What, why do some cry power, others folly? Verse 19, for it is written, says God in Isaiah 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. As one version puts it, the cleverness of the clever, God will set aside. You see, God's message could have been very, very clever, couldn't it? God's message could have been what the upper class academics in Corinth applauded. God's message could have been a, a message only appreciated and only understood by the very wisest and the ablest in this world. God's message could have been the, the striking message of perhaps a, a Greek orator in a famous courtroom brilliantly arguing for humanity's release from their captivity to sin. God's message could have been the striking message of a great Greek warrior, hero, in a famous battle, brilliantly winning humanity from the jaws of death and ruin. But instead, God chooses a message that sounds stupid. Because God is in the business, verse 20, of turning this world upside down. Of making the wisdom of this world foolish of showing verse 25 that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and that the very weakness of God is stronger than men. In order to destroy human pride, God chooses the, the seemingly silliest message ever. God chooses something even more silly than, than a great man coming down to London to fit in a common wine bottle 
For God chooses that his king, the very Christ, would come down and be crucified as a common criminal. And so friends, please see in this divine choice that God hates nothing more than pride. For he has deliberately devised a message that small children can grasp in a moment and that the mentally handicapped can instantly treasure and that those with dementia will not forget. But God has done that not only to kindly exalt and esteem the the, the nobodies of this world, but to cut down your pride and mine. God, you see, crushes our pride, not only in the foolish message itself, but in the foolish messengers who may bring it to us. For verse 28, God chose people. These are his messengers. God chose people who are foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose people who are weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose the the, the, the low and the despised in the world to bring to nothing the people that are. Indeed, in his his autobiography, the famous uh, Victorian preacher, Charles Spurgeon, a man of unfathomable uh, intellect and, and wisdom, recorded his own conversion story. And who converted This this intellectual giant who was lost in in great depressive musings. Well, in his own words, Charles Spurgeon described the one who brought him God's word like this. One Sunday morning, while I was going to a certain place of worship, I realized that I could go no further for God had sent a snowstorm. And so I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In the chapel there were just a dozen, and I had already heard how this church sang so loudly that it would make people's heads ache. And due to the snow, the minister did not come that morning. And so at last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. And this man was really stupid. Indeed, he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. His text was, look unto me and ye be saved. But he did not even pronounce the words rightly. And in a broad Essex accent, by which Americans might read thick rural southern drawl, he said, many of you are looking to yourselves, but it ain't no good to look there. And when he had finally managed to spin out 10 minutes, and so was at the end of his tether, he then looked at me under the galley. And as if he knew my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. And you will always be miserable. Miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. And then lifting up his hand, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. And at once I saw the way to salvation. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away and in that moment I saw the sun. 
and I could have risen in that instance and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and of simple faith that looks to him. How apt, how very apt that one of the greatest minds in the world through would be, would be brought to salvation through the means of a stupid shoemaker who could barely string a sentence together. Well, friends, that's how God works. In fact, it is what God's message and messengers have been doing throughout all history. From the time of the Corinthians to the time of Charles Spurgeon to the time of this very sermon. For the message of God is dividing people right now. The message of God is destroying pride here, right now. And so final point this morning. What messengers does God choose? What messengers does God choose? Well, in light of the story of the shoemaker that I just told, you'd be unsurprised to learn that firstly, God tends to choose. God tends to choose those of humble beginnings. What messengers does God choose? Those of humble beginnings. You see, the Corinthians were seemingly obsessed with winning the richest and the smartest and the most powerful in their city to the Lord. For they believed that if they began with the best, then the rest would just follow along. And so they believed that they could just, if they could just turn down the volume a little bit on the feebleness and turn up the volume on finery, if they could just find some kind of great Greek orator, then the message would find some kind of traction with those who really mattered in the world. And then the real growth would begin. But Paul reminds them that in God's organization, it is not organized like that. Indeed, he reminds them of how their own church began. Verse 26, he says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth in, in modern terms. When you were converted, not many of you were Ivy League graduates. Not, not many of you were star athletes or musicians. Not many of you came from, from top political families. But my dear Corinthian brothers, I'm not sure who you are suddenly expecting to join our family now. But since God's message it is the most humbling message in the world. Don't be surprised if the makeup of your church is those from humble beginnings just like you. Likewise, friends, what are you hoping for here? What will get you really excited this morning? If the, if the Chancellor of, of Vanderbilt University came in? If a top politician stayed afterwards for, for tea and coffee? If a country music star was, was baptized right here? Friends, I'd love it if that happened. But after reading this passage, I'd, I'd be surprised. If I look around at the, at, the, at the people sitting next to you, look at the people on stage. Nobody here has a, a Twitter following in the thousands and thousands. Nobody here regularly has their name up in lights. Nobody here is, a, is an American congressman or, or woman or a British duke or earl. And yet that's often what we crave, isn't it? Because we want to kind of ref we want to bask in the, in the reflected glory of, of such a wise and unpopular and powerful person being kind of on our side. You know, recently, I've noticed uh, even my kids doing this. 
In fact, on one recent uh, car journey to school, the, the conversation went like this. Dad, were the Beatles Christians? No, they weren't. Dad, was Winston Churchill a, a Christian? Uh, no, he wasn't. Dad, is J.K. Rowling a Christian? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. Dad, is that English soccer player a Christian? No. Dad, is the new King Charles a Christian? No. And as I waved them off to school, I, I thought, how, how kind of childish and, and ridiculous to, to want a church full of, of, of British celebrities, past and present. And then I wondered if that is often subtly what we teach our kids. For friends, how many evangelical agencies are there that are all about kind of finding the superstars of, of a particular field? How many Christian ministries focus on, on the top student? How many, how many ministry website photos are of the beautiful? How many world mission organizations are all about converting the, the, the rural village leader so that the rest of the village will just follow suit? Friends, it's obviously not wrong. It's obviously not wrong to take the, the message to the best and the brightest. They need the gospel too. Or to pray for the salvation of, of politicians and presidents. They could do much good. Or to take the, the, the message to Silicon Valley in the, in the hope that, that such people could, could pay for more messengers. The desire to save such people can be a very noble one. But the more common theme of Scripture, since God loves to construct an, an, an upside-down kingdom that he will build with broken and rejected bricks. For after all, his very son was the cornerstone that the builders rejected. Unbelievers here this morning, are you willing to become like Christ, to find Christ? What messengers does God choose? Normally those of humble beginnings, but always those who stay humble to the end. What messengers does God choose? Final point this morning, very final point. Those of humble beginnings who are humble to the end. Now, now many of us here, no doubt, uh, really uh, appreciate uh, the idea of, of a humble beginning. Humble beginning is a, kind of, is a rather romantic one. Indeed, I think that Americans in particular love this idea of the underprivileged upstart that, that goes on to become a mighty millionaire. It's a kind of American dream that the country is based on. You can start with nothing, but you can become anything. But as a result, dangerously, that idea can be filtered through faith. Such that the business maxim from, from humble beginnings come great things it is then imparted upon Christianity. But again, that's not the way of God, is it? If I look at verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that, verse 29, look carefully, so that no human being might boast and when in the presence of God Friends, can you see, we don't start off in Christianity in lowliness, as, as kind of commoners, as poor fools in the city, but then slowly climb the spiritual ladder such that we arrive in heaven as the kind of the dukes and earls of the day. No. 
from our beginning to our end, it is the humble that, that God calls to be his messengers. It is those who, who start off in the Christian journey proclaiming the message that, that Jesus did it all, that I am a wretch, that, that he had to die for me. My, my righteousness, sanctification, redemption calls all from him. And it is those who at the end of their Christian journey keep on with that same message. God only calls those who boast in the Lord and God only keeps those who keep boasting in him. Verse 30 again. It is because of him, because of God, not you. It is because of him that you are in Christ who has come for us to be wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friend, because of that message, you will grow. You will grow, you will grow in knowledge, and you'll grow in wisdom, and you'll grow in diligence, and you'll probably grow in loveliness. And at the end of your life, you'll probably end up with more money than you had when you started. But friends, my, my dear friends, God did not graciously call you to be his messenger because you were smart or because of the gospel you became smarter so that his message could be defended by your great mind. God did not graciously call you to be his messenger because you were rich or, or because of the gospel became even richer so that his message could be financed by your bank account. God did not graciously call you to be his messenger because you were hardworking, or because of what you saw in the gospel became even more hardworking so that his message could be built by your strength and your grit. God did not graciously call you to be his messenger because you were lovely, or because of the gospel you came became even lovelier so that his message could be adorned by your smile or your, your wonderful hospitality. No. No, God will not let us spoil. He will not let us spoil his gracious calling of us, his gracious message for the humble by letting us slowly turn that message year after year into a way for us to boast in ourselves. He chooses those of humble beginnings who are humble to the end, who are humble all the way into his presence. He chooses those who keep on singing, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. And so before we sing that, let us pray to that end. Let's pray.